Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, uh, this morning is going to be our last message in our current series called the book, uh, called uh, Head and Kingdom, Present King, excuse me, on the book of Esther. We've been going through this series now for seven weeks, and uh, I, I, for one, am really sad to see it end. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I think it's been a great series. I've enjoyed really getting into this book for really the first time that I've had an opportunity to preach through it. Um, but as they say, all good things must come to an end, and that end is going to be today. But, we, uh, but we're not done yet. We've got a really uh, a, a couple of great chapters that are going to finish out this book in Esther chapters 9 and 10. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, but I think as we get into it, we're going to begin to see how these last seven weeks that we've been in this book, these last two months, really are brought home in the final part of the book of Esther, and really brought home for us, kind of in a modern way, to impact how we think about what it means to live as Christ followers today and to follow Jesus as God's people, the church. And so our last week in the book of Esther brings us to what is known as the denouement of narratives. Now the denouement, if you don't know this word, maybe if you're not a literature major, probably the only people who know this word are literature majors. The denouement is the end, is, is like the end phase. It's the important part of a narrative that kind of ends things and clears them up. And besides just being a really fun French word to say, the word itself means to untie or to unknot. And so as you're reading through a narrative or as you come to the end of a story, oh, you've got all these kind of plot lines that go through and are kind of knotted together. When you get to the denouement, a good denouement explains and clarifies where all of those plot lines have been leading us. And then we get to a place that gives us some clarity as far as what the message is really all about of the book. And sometimes we see various messages that come together at the end. So this is what we're going to see today in the book of Esther. Esther chapters 9 and 10 are the denouement of this book. And so all of the drama that we've been through this entire book from the opening chapters um, of King Xerxes to the progression of Haman rising to, to the place that he was in to Esther and Mordecai and all the decisions that they had to make and all of the drama and all the political intrigue and all of the action and really the dark comedy that's even sprinkled into this book and all the things that happened, the miraculous events, this is the place that we arrive at this morning to see how all of these things tie together. And along the way, of course, we talked about there are certain places where there's a heightened uh, peak of action that happens in the story. For example, the climax of our book we can identify as the time when Esther confronts Haman. Esther, who is our protagonist, our hero, confronts our antagonist, who is the villain Haman. But at the same time, I think there's many places that we could look at throughout this book where we can see peaks of action. And although they might not be the climactic action of the book, there's like these peaks that happen throughout the book that keep the book going forward. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the book of Esther is it's so full of these amazing turning points that happen throughout. And whether it's the time where Mordecai stands uh, in front of Haman and refuses to bow and takes that stand of faith, or Esther walks into the uh, king's throne room and identifies her as a, herself as a Jew under threat of, of death, or it is Esther confronting Haman, or the king actually having Haman executed. These are all events that happen, and we're going to see this last peak of action today here in Esther chapter 9 as it all kind of wraps up together. Now, I was driving home the other day, and of course, I'm geeking out on, on Esther, the book of Esther all the time. I'm always thinking about it. I'm researching it. And so this kind of came to me as I was driving home the other day. There's a street right outside of our neighborhood where we get a really nice view of Four Peaks Mountain. If you've never seen Four Peaks Mountain, it looks like that. It's named Four Peaks Mountain because it has four peaks on it. 
creatively enough. And I was thinking to myself, this is kind of a great representation of the book of Esther because there's all these peaks of action. I don't know if there's four or there's five. See, I told you I'm geeking out on this. But at the same time, like hopefully this helps maybe you remember a little bit visually the action that happens throughout the book of Esther. It's like from one peak to another, really starting from like chapter three or four forward, we're just hitting thing after thing after thing. And we're going to finally get to that last peak this morning as we open up Esther chapter 9. So as we do, let's start uh, in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I want to just prepare you for that ahead of time. But as we begin, uh, we're going to be in verse 1. You can open up your Bibles, your devices, or of course it'll be on the screens behind us as we read together. It says this in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Now the Jews struck all the enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased with those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, and then there's a bunch of names that I'm not going to stumble over pronouncing <laughs> this morning, uh, but those are the names of the ten sons of Haman as we, hit, as, as we pick up in verse 10. It says this, The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 11, That very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what, is your, what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, Well, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Now the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of, uh, a day of feasting and of gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and resisted on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns held the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and of feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Okay, so as we prepared you for last week, we said Esther chapter 9 would be that event where the Jews actually have to defend themselves against this army of attacking uh, enemies against them, right? So in other words, there was a group of, and it seems like almost 100,000 people or so, they kill 75,000 of them and, and, and more, hundreds of, of others inside the city of Susa. So we're not sure exactly how many actually attacked the Jews at this point, but it was a lot of them. 
There's at least tens of thousands, maybe up to 100,000 armed attackers were going after the Jews under the original edict of Haman. And we might ask ourselves, why in the world is this, why in the world are there so many enemies within Persia coming at the Jewish people who are there? Well, we get a little bit of a hint of that in the details of what the author provides us here in chapter 9. We're told that Haman left behind 10 sons. And those sons apparently had a lot of influence and a lot of power because they seemed to be the ones who were behind all of these attacking armies. They carry on this legacy of Haman, but whatever Haman was looking to get out of this edict, they carry this on on his behalf. We can probably also assume that in some ways Haman still had a lot of loyal followers, and maybe even, in some cases, the Persians might have thought that because Mordecai was getting so powerful and they were afraid of Mordecai, that the Jews were a threat to the throne of Xerxes. So they might have thought they were defending their kingdom. Whatever the case may have been, this is a huge army that is attacking this exiled population of citizens. But, as God has done throughout the book of Esther, he provides miraculously for his people to deliver them. And in this case, what happens is that because of Mordecai's position, all of the other governors throughout the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Persia, the governors, the satraps, whatever a satrap is, uh, military leaders, all of those people, right, they look to Mordecai and they actually join the fight against the attackers and protect the Jewish people in the midst of these attacks to the tune of 75,000 people plus dying who had attacked the Jews. And of course, the 10 sons of Haman, not only being killed, but being hung after they were dead, which is just really brutal. But as you can see through this whole thing, this is like the, this is that event where the book ends and kind of ties together all of the action here. Because we've been asking really since Haman issued that edict, what is God going to do and how is God going to protect the Jewish people? But maybe, maybe at one point as you're reading through this, you might think, well, there's going to be a place where that edict gets struck down and it doesn't actually get carried out. But we get to the end of the book, and of course, as the king said, a king's edict can't be repealed. And so, boom, there are the people attacking on the day that they were supposed to, but God delivers them in maybe a really unexpected way. He actually uses the military force from the other nations within the Persian kingdom to defend the Jews, which again is a statement of God's miraculous provision and his providence in delivering his people that has happened throughout this book and now continues through. But, as you may know, as you can, if you've read the book of Esther before, this is not the end of the story. In fact, we get to the last two verses here and we realize that it's not just, you know, kind of the victory in battle and then Jews celebrate for a little bit and then fade to black. The story's not over yet. It actually continues here and it's this last part that becomes our end, our clarity, our denouement, if you will. And it starts here in verse 20. And it really is this discussion of the feast, what becomes known as the Feast of Purim. Verse 20, it says this, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from that, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, but had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. 
But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Now therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and all of what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obliged themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the appointed time every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews." nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obliged them. And as they obliged themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. Now, the, the, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. Okay, so that's a mouthful, right? A lot going on there. But one thing we see in the midst of this, and we haven't got to this this place yet where we've been talking about Purim, but in reality, the book of Esther and Purim go hand in hand. Now, you may have never, if you, if, you don't, if you don't come from a Jewish background or you've never read the book of Esther before, you may have never heard of Purim before. Because it's certainly not one of the major religious holidays. It's not one of the ones that's pre- prescribed elsewhere in the Old Testament, like the Passover or Yom Kippur. It's not even Hanukkah. It's Purim. And so you might not have ever heard of it before. But at the same time, this is intentional in the way that the author is presenting to us uh, the way that Purim developed. Because Part of the reason we probably have the book of Esther is because it's designed to explain why Purim was being celebrated at the time. The book of Esther was written a few years after the events that it actually records, and so there was time there, obviously, where the Jews were celebrating this kind of mysterious holiday, and people were probably asking, why are we celebrating this again? And so the book of Esther was written, and ever since that time, the book of Esther is actually written from, is is read, excuse me, from front to back during the celebration of Purim to remind the people of what God had done during this time to save and to deliver them as exiles in the Persian Empire, in the Persian Kingdom. And in that way, the way that they celebrate it, the way that they speak these words, the way that they share the story is reminiscent of all the other Old Testament festivals that we see and all the Old, Old Testament feasts that we see throughout the Old Testament in that they're designed to remind the people of what God has done among them. They're like object lessons. Even the feasts, the food that they enjoy, have kind of object lessons within them to remind them of God's faithfulness and what God has done among them as his people. One of the things actually that we see in the celebration of Purim, and really Purim is one of those, because it's not prescribed in Scripture for us, we only see a couple of things here. Is that part of Purim celebration is to have a feast 
and then to give gifts to one another and give gifts to the poor. But beyond that, because it's been celebrated 2,500 years kind of by, by the Jews every year, the traditions have changed throughout. But a few different things that we can latch onto as meanings behind this that point us to a, kind of a greater meaning of what Purim is all about. First of all, one of the things that the Jews do is they, is they read Deuteronomy chapter 25 as part of this celebration. Now, why is that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 25 says this in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way, and when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given rest from all of your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven, and you shall not forget. One of the things we discussed about Haman, who is the big villain in this story, is that Haman is descendant from the Amalekites. The Amalekites were actually have the distinction of being the first nation who actually tried to, to extinguish and destroy the Israelites after they became God's people. And because of that, they are representative of all the different enemy nations who try to wipe out God's people throughout the Old Testament. And not only that, but of course, Haman was descendant directly from the Amalekites, who were also known in history as a very brutal people. You see it in Deuteronomy 25 there. They specifically targeted the weak among the enemy nations, among the nations that they were fighting, to destroy them kind of as a, as a terrorist tactic. So they would take out those who were, deliber- they would deliberately target those who were elderly, those who were sick, and the children among their enemies to intimidate and to terrorize them, which was a brutal way of conducting war, which is an unethical way of conducting war even back then. And so God recognized that they were evil because they were enemies of Israel, but because they were just evil, just plain evil, right? But when we see, what's interesting about this, when we read the book of Esther, what we see is that Haman is introduced as Haman the Agagite. King Agag was an Amalekite king during the time of when Israel defeated the Amalekites under King Saul. And during that time, after the Israelites had defeated the Amalekites, God said to King Saul, go and destroy all of the Amalekites that are left, including the king. And if you know the story, you know that King Saul disobeyed God. He left King Agag alive. And as a result, generations later, we have Haman the Agagite in the book of Esther. And so God finally disposes of the Amalekites in the book of Esther through Esther's faithfulness and through Mordecai coming to to power. That's significant in this because what it shows through this celebration of Purim is that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful, that he delivers his people even when his people and even the king of his people disobey. And look, in all of this, I think there's a lot of other things we could highlight. One of the other things that happens during Purim that I think is an interesting tidbit is that during the feast, there is a special pastry that the Jewish people uh, enjoy called a hamantashen, which I'm, hamantashen, okay, I'm pretty sure I pronounced that wrong, and so you guys helped me out. That's great. So, uh, but really, what this pastry is designed, it's a layered pastry with a jelly-filled middle. And it's designed to remind the Jews of the fact that although we don't see through the layers of, of what we see all the time, God's activity, in the middle and behind the layers of the world that we see, God is, his hidden purposes and his hidden goodness is operating behind the scenes. Isn't that an amazing thing? As you eat that pastry, you see the, the hiddenness of God in the midst of that pastry. So it's a way of celebrating Purim as well. But in all of this, right, one of the big takeaways of the celebration of Purim that really relates to us, I think, and who we are is that it's a reminder, generation after generation, 
of the temptation that we all have as God's people to just assimilate to the culture and the world around us. I think we've read through the book of Esther and studied the book of Esther through seven weeks. But if you sat down and read the book of Esther all at once like they do during a Purim festival, I think one of the things you'll notice is how Esther and Mordecai progress in their character and their trust of God from the beginning to the end of the book. In other words, from the beginning, they were people who looked like Persians, they act like Persians, they really had no interest seemingly in being recognized as Jews, especially Mordecai because it preserved his ability to kind of move up through the political ranks. But you get to those critical moments in the middle of the book where both Mordecai and then Esther have to make that stand and say, we are Jewish people who trust in the king who is unseen, not the king who is seen, King Xerxes. And from that point on, God shifts the narrative, works through Esther and Mordecai to bring about his purposes. And as this book is read, it's a reminder of gener- for generation after generation of the danger that Israel has always had and God's people, by extension, have always had in terms of our temptation to assimilate to the world around us. God originally established Israel as his separate holy people. And he set them in the midst of nations and said to them, you will be different by the way that you live. You will be different by the way that the fact that that God will be your king, I will be your king, and I'll set you in the middle of the nations and all the other nations will then look at you and ask, why is it that you are different? And you'll have an opportunity to be a witness for who Yahweh is. And yet we see throughout Old Testament history That time and time again, Israel not only assimilated to their culture around them, but began to worship the gods of other nations. Idolatry was one of the things that they were constantly tempted with. And as we open up the first chapter of the book of Esther, what we see from the beginning is this description of King Xerxes. And we're set with this contrast of King Xerxes' kingdom, the kingdom that is visible, against the kingdom of God that is invisible, that's operating behind the scenes. And as Esther and Mordecai move through the story, which as the Jews celebrate Purim, they're encouraged to kind of picture themselves as Esther and Mordecai in that journey. They move from people who have to make a decision between trusting in the kingdom that they see and the kingdom that has really given them a lot of political influence and power and money and all the rest and the kingdom of God that's operating behind the scenes with the king whom they cannot see, who they know is the true king in the end. And if you think about it, if you, remember being, if you remember through the story, the way that King Xerxes is introduced and described, there's a lot that they give up, and a lot that they've been given in order to make that sacrifice to follow God and be faithful. I mean, King Xerxes himself, if you just look at it from a surface level, he's a really intimidating man. I mean, he has everything at his disposal. He is literally the richest and most powerful man on the face of the planet during this book. Open of the book, when you see things like all the things, when you talk about all the things that the world wants and that the world lusts after and the world fights over, King Xerxes had it all. He had money, he had power, he had status, he had uh, pleasure whenever he wanted it, and he was in this place where almost anything and everything he wanted or needed was at his beck and call. When we talk about money, you sometimes hear the phrase, that person has more money than they know what to do with. This was literally King Xerxes. I mean, he had so much gold that he just started making furniture out of it. He made couches out of gold, took them out on the battlefield, and just left them there like an old sock or something. That's how much money he had. And then he threw a festival for six months where there was just open bar, free food for everybody. That's like throwing a wedding every day for six months. How expensive would that get? Money was no object to him. Power, 
Xerxes ruled over a kingdom that stretched from Asia to Europe to Africa, a kingdom that spanned into four different continents, and he was the most powerful man on the planet, had the largest kingdom that had ever existed to that point in history. How about this? The, the pleasure and the sex and relationships that King Xerxes lived out is in some ways the world's idea of what sex and relationships are supposed to be. You can have sex with as many people as you want. You can use other people's bodies for your own sexual fulfillment. And that was King Xerxes. He had a harem of women that was the largest kingdom harem that had ever existed at the time. As far as relationships go, he literally had his pick of any of the women in throughout the kingdom to be his queen. And then finally, status. As with many nations in the ancient world, King Xerxes was considered to be a god by the Persians whom he ruled over. And all of these things, though, as all these things come to the surface and we see all these things, as enticing as they may be from a worldly perspective, what we see as the story progresses is that these are actually the things that destroy King Xerxes. His money feeds his greed. His power fuels more of a lust for power, so he ends up going on this foolish war to, to, to try to defeat the Greeks and then ends up losing that war, which leads ultimately to the, the, the destruction, the defeat of the Persian Empire about 100 years later. His, uh, his, his sexual appetite, his sexual lust destroys countless lives throughout the empire, literally taking young girls through a system of sexual traf- sex trafficking and making them sex slaves in the palace. And then being worshipped as a god leaves Xerxes to be so drunk with power that he ends up being killed just a few years after the end of this book. Now, Esther and Mordecai had their choice. Do they cast their lot with this king? and his failing, broken kingdom? Or do they cast their lot with the kingdom of God? And we don't know exactly what happens to Esther and Mordecai after this book, but what we do know is that as much power as they had in the kingdom of Xerxes, two years later when he's assassinated, they don't have any of that left. No one's keeping Queen Esther around after King Xerxes is dead. And Mordecai was only in the position he was in because of his loyalty to King Xerxes. And so they lost that political power at some point a few years later, But what we know is by the end of the book, they inherited the kingdom of God because of their faith. Now look, this message is still relevant for us today. Really, one of the most biblical messages that comes out of the book of Esther is a reminder, not only of assimilation, but, but also of this danger of idolatry in our own hearts. You know, we live in a very complicated world. We live in a world where it's not as simple as just kind of bowing down to a king or bowing down to some pagan god or bowing down to some piece of wood. We live in a modern world that's full of complexities and nuance so that everything that we do, every idea we take in, every experience we participate in has a way of forming our hearts and our minds. And we do well to kind of be cognizant of that fact that everything we do affects us in some ways. Every idea we take in affects us in some ways. And we're people who live in a world where experience affects us. And that's a good thing. God's created us for that. The relationships we engage in, the experiences we have impact us and they influence us. I mean, imagine living in a world where you couldn't appreciate, you know, the the awesomeness of a sunset. Imagine living in a world where, you know, when you get to the top of the mountain and see the, the vista that's in front of you that you couldn't awe at the majesty of it all. God's created us this way so that we can enjoy the creation that he's given us, but at the same time, our hearts because of our sin nature, because of the way that we process things, because of the fallenness of who we are, often latch on to those things as the ultimate thing instead of the one who has given it to us. And creation becomes what we worship rather than the creator. 
Instead, because God loves us, he wants us to be able to stand in the awe of a beautiful sunset, to have relationships and to enjoy those relationships as a reflection of his goodness. Tim Keller says this. He says, look, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Now, the thing about anything is that anything is rarely a bad thing. Anything tends to be those things that are really good things that just get out of order. You think about this in terms of, uh, of joy and what it means to be content in all of our circumstances. I think the difference between emotional happiness and true contentment joy is the difference between delighting in the things of this world and trusting in the things of this world and delighting and trusting in the God who has given them to us. You know, it's, it's, of course, Christmas season. It's the Advent season, so a lot of us are doing Christmas shopping. It is your Black Friday shopping or whatever it may be. As you're buying gifts for people whom you love, you're buying gifts for them as a token of your love and relationship with them, right? So, for, so in most cases, like when you're buying especially a special gift that you know is going to make somebody happy, you buy it as a way of saying, I love you or you're important to me. And as you're picking that thing on Amazon or you're picking that toy or that, 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 that gift off of the shelf at the store and putting it in your cart, you're actually probably thinking about in some ways the reaction that is going to happen as you give that person that gift on Christmas Day. And what your hope is, is that this is going to be a token of our relationship, and they'll recognize that I've given this to them out of my heart, and and because I love them, and because I want them to be happy, and enjoy this thing, and all the rest. But you know this, if you've ever given a gift to a small kid, how quickly they can turn what was intended to be something that was a connection in relationship, and a token of your love for them, into just being about the thing, right? You know what I'm saying? And so, that thing that they get, whatever it may be, actually becomes... It causes them to be less focused on you and your relationship with them and your presence with them and more about that thing that they're focused on. Or they, lo- they use the thing in the wrong way for which it was intended. In other words, you give a kid a baseball bat and he starts hitting his sister with it, right? You realize, hey, you missed the point of that gift. I think this is a good representation of the gifts that God gives us. God gives us gifts as a, as a, as a, as a token of his love and relationship for us, Oftentimes, we focus too much on the gift, forget about the giver, or we use the gift in the wrong way that either hurts ourselves or hurts other people. That's when it becomes idolatrous. Augustine said, look, the key to life change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. And I think if we have the gifts in the right order so that we love God through the gifts of creation, then they are in the right place, they're in the right order. I'm going to just close by saying this, is that feasting is a big theme throughout the book of Esther, We see the word feast show up 20 times in this book. It only shows up 24 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Feasting is a big deal. The book itself ends with a feast. You may also know that the Bible itself ends with a feast, what we know as the the uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's during that time when we see and we look forward to the fact that Jesus will come back and that his kingdom of peace will finally reign in this world in a visible way to which we have never seen it before. And that because of that, we have true contentment. We have a basis for contentment and joy even today because we have that hope in Jesus. That as we stand between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus, we look forward to ultimate joy and contentment that will come. And look, we don't have festivals in the New Testament that are prescribed for us 
like we do in the Old Testament. And the reason for that, I think, is this. Is that we are called to be people who celebrate a festival every single day. The festival of the resurrection of Jesus. We are new creation people who celebrate out of joy in every circumstance. And that doesn't, also, that doesn't always mean laughter and happiness and emotional happiness. Sometimes it does and many times it does. But at the same time, we know that life isn't always full of happiness and laughter and emotional happiness. But it can be full of joy in every circumstance. And just as Israel was called to be different among the nations, I believe this is the one thing or one of the many things that we've been called to as Christians to live life in such a way where contentment and joy is obvious in the world around us. Imagine how that would impact the world around us. We live in a world that's so characterized by anger and outrage and loneliness and depression and brokenness. What if people like us could live in the light of knowing what Jesus promised us and live in contentment and joy alongside others who are struggling and suffering. What an amazing witness. That is what it looks like to be different and to, and to be witnesses for the God who is not seen, but the God who is the true king. I want to invite um, the band to join me up here on stage. We're going to respond this morning this way. As we think about what it means to bring joy to the world, to bring Jesus to the world in all of our relationships, if you look into your bulletin this morning, uh, there's a prayer guide that looks like this. It's just a simple sheet of paper. It's a simple tool that encourages you to think through the relationships in your lives. It's called the Circle of Relationships Prayer Guide. It's just exactly what it is. The explain is right there. To think through the circles of relationships that you have in your life so that it can guide you in praying specifically for names of people in each one of these areas. And we encourage you to do this throughout the Advent season, but continue it into the new year. Allow it to be a tool maybe that you use um, you know, over a long, period, a long period of time. But what this will do is guide you through just thinking about people in family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and even praying that God would bring new relationships into your life. Names of people who either don't know Jesus or who really need to know joy during this Advent season because they're struggling through something. And so this is just a tool that we want to encourage you to use. This will be part of our response time this morning. The band's going to play for a couple of minutes to give you time to kind of work through writing some names down and then take this home with you and continue to add names to it. Put it someplace visible like in your Bible or in a bathroom or on the refrigerator and just continue to add names to this as God brings them to mind. And as it says on the back, pray for all of these names at least one time per week. And you can use kind of like, you know, one through five, one day each week, however you want to do it. But this is a guide for you to use. We're going to, the band's going to play for a couple of minutes and then Aaron will invite us all to stand together and to finish out singing. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. As the gospel of Jesus shows us, the way that our hearts, our loves are reordered in our hearts is by delving deep into the way that God has loved us first in Jesus. And so if you're struggling with kind of what, the, what are the things I love and how should I love them in what order, reflect on the gospel, that God has loved you in Jesus 
above all, above all things, we are to respond out of the love that he has shown us first. And that has a way of just reordering the loves in our hearts. So if you're encouraged by that, I want to pray. And then quick, I have, I have a couple of instructions before we leave. Let's pray for this morning. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. As we come to the book of Esther, at the end of the book of Esther, we have learned a lot over these past seven weeks about how you move and how you work in our lives. And Lord, may we be encouraged by the fact that you are faithful in all situations. Lord, that you show your grace and mercy in, in ways that we uh, can't fully even comprehend. But in the end, Lord, we know that you are at work among us, constantly showing us how gracious, how merciful, and how loving you are. And so I pray that we would be receptive to that. Among all the times that we have in the year to do that, what better time than now during the Advent season to deeply take in the deep breath of your goodness and love towards us as we stop and we rest and we anticipate Christmas Day, the celebration of the ultimate demonstration of your love for us the arrival of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.